Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of the forthcoming book, Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, I'm happy to report that the good martini ought to be a great martini for everyone. This is not limited to conservatives, as just about everyone knows or ought to know by now today marks exactly 75 years since the launch of Operation Overlord, which over the past 75 years has become known more colloquially as D-Day. And that's when we stormed the beaches of Normandy on foot, a bombardment from the sea on the English Channel, and the paratroopers that came flying in in the middle of the night that morning. Here is future president, and at the time, General Dwight Eisenhower, with his message to the troops. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. So 75 years later, a major commemoration, of course, in Normandy. President Trump, among the leaders of the Allied nations, speaking, spoke for nearly 30 minutes and received So much praise that even Jim Acosta and Joe Scarborough said that Trump did a great job in this speech. So, you know, for the most part, there's not a lot to complain about. A couple of excerpts here. Here's what the president said. First thing, right after acknowledging all the dignitaries there. We are gathered here on freedom's altar, on these shores, on these bluffs, on this day 75 years ago. 10,000 men shed their blood and thousands sacrificed their lives for their brothers, for their countries, and for the survival of liberty. Today we remember those who fell and we honor all who fought right here in Normandy. And then towards the end of the speech, he talked about the legacy that those still with us and that those who fell leave behind. To the men who sit behind me, And to the boys who rest in the field before me, your example will never, ever grow old. Your spirit, brave, unyielding, and true, will never die. The blood that they spilled, the tears that they shed, the lives that they gave, the sacrifice that they made, did not just win a battle. It did not just win a war. Those who fought here won a future for our nation. They won the survival of our civilization. And they showed us the way to love, cherish, and defend our way of life for many centuries to come. Jim, I don't think anyone's going to argue that Donald Trump will ever be the orator that President Reagan was. And um, we all, of course, remember or at least know of the stirring speeches that he gave now 35 years ago. But the concepts and the significance of D-Day that Trump captured in this speech are, are absolutely true. It's almost hard to overstate the significance of what was accomplished 75 years ago. Very well put, Greg. And, uh, you know, you, you can love the president, you can hate the president. 
we've seen numerous times in the past, the president, sometimes he literally picks up the script and says, ah, this is nonsense. And he you know, throws it and he likes to wing it. He likes to improvise ad lib. And I, I'd argue, I think the president has good speechwriters. I think he pays them well. I think that there is a use for them. I don't think that there's anything inherently dishonest or phony of having someone think through and prepare remarks, particularly for an event as important as this. We see the president give good speeches at the State of the Union when he actually follows what's written down, is on the teleprompter. And I think this might rank as one of the best speeches of his presidency. And it's okay to not improvise. It's okay to not wing it. And it goes very well. I just want to share, There's I could read about and watch documentaries about D-Day all day long. But there's one little detail that I think is absolutely fascinating. It's about one of the Canadian contributors. Uh, the Canadians uh, reach Juneau Beach. Uh, they're obviously taking heavy fire. The HMS Ajax had tried to bomb the beach, but, you know, really hadn't done nearly as much damage as they hoped. The beach was covered with anti-tank mines. Luckily, the guys themselves were not heavily enough to set them off. But there's one soldier who would end up becoming recognized much later in life for something different, reached the beach, managed to shoot two German snipers, and uh, eventually ended up losing a finger to the combat in the war. This is James Doohan, more commonly known as Scotty, the original Star Trek. Uh, and somebody noted, if you ever look closely, you'd never see Scotty's both hands because Doohan lost a finger in World War II. And he was among those who stormed the beaches on D-Day. And he was, you know, very modest about it. He said things like, oh, we were much more worried about drowning than by the Germans. But just kind of you, you marvel at how much these guys went out and did something extraordinary and that the world could never adequately repay and then they, you know, after the war, they went on to, in many cases, seemingly mundane lives after doing something extraordinary. You can have a hero. You can have somebody who did something of unimaginable courage and unimaginable difficulty. And just they're living a normal life down the street around the corner from you. More and more of these uh, veterans pass each year. Greg, I know you've done an extraordinary job of trying to document their stories. Uh, but just one of those turning points of, of human history. I'm glad that year by certain years, obviously on the on the right numeral uh, anniversaries, it gets marked on a bigger scale. But I wasn't. I felt like if not a national holiday, the June sixth really did deserve some sort of uh, almost like a national moment of pausing and remembering because of how much human history turned on what happened that day. Very well stated, Jim. And yes, it's been a great honor of mine here, in addition to doing three martini lunch and a number of other things here, doing the oral histories of veterans from. At one point, World War I all the way up to the present, now uh, with a heavy focus on gathering as many World War II veterans as possible. And the thing that you just marvel at time and time again with these gripping stories of heroism is that they never think they're a hero. Whether they've received uh, the Medal of Honor or some other high accolade or, or tell a story that just boggles the mind, it's always the other guy who was the real hero, and particularly the ones who didn't come home. And so, like you said, the modesty of these amazing Americans uh, who came home from the war and then lived around the corner and, and most of their neighbors probably never even knew what they did, whether it's on the beaches of D-Day or somewhere else in World War II or one of the other conflicts our country has been involved in, is really one of the great hallmarks of, uh, of these heroes as well. No real good way to transition to our ad today, so we're just going to do it. We're sponsored today by Quip Electric Toothbrushes, and it's, you know, it's that time of year where we celebrate a lot of things. Uh, we're celebrating graduates, high school and college graduates, and nowadays, Jim, we even celebrate kindergarten and elementary and junior high graduates, so why not? Get them equipped, too. It's also Father's Day coming up in a little over a week. Get that gift for Dad, because the Quip Toothbrush is really cool. Treat their teeth to an electric toothbrush from Quip, 
and help them build good habits for the future. The signature guiding features will not only be a gentle reminder to stick to a daily self-care routine, but hey, it will also keep their smile bright wherever they go. And we know their futures are bright, those graduates, so their smiles ought to be pretty bright too. Quip has sensitive sonic vibrations for an effective clean that's gentle on your sensitive gums. There's a built-in two-minute timer pulse every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, and it helps you clean your whole mouth evenly. Quip's multi-use cover works as a stand. It mounts to mirrors and slides over your bristles to pack and protect your Quip when you're on the go. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5, a friendly reminder when it's time for a refresh and to stay committed to your oral health. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes that is accepted by the American Dental Association. They're backed by more than 25,000 dental professionals, and they have thousands of verified five-star reviews. And now you can try the new Quip Kids Brush. The new brush is the same as the original version, but tweaked for size-down kids' mouths. Children are inspired to brush better and more often with oral care that looks and feels just like the products their grown-ups in their life use. And they're proud to use Quip. You can help them develop a grown-up routine without childish gimmicks. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Quip comes with toothpaste. It is uh, perfectly fine and enjoyable by my mouth. I know sometimes you get the stuff. It's blue. It's got the sparkles in it. It's, you know, particularly kids' toothpaste. They try to make a bubblegum flavor. You know, I myself don't typically like it. And, of course, certain other brands of toothpaste, my sons have said, eh, it's too strong, it's too strong, it's too intensely minty. Well, Quip is perfectly fine and moderate, easy going on kids' mouths, perfectly fine, and it works. And that's really what you need in a toothbrush and toothpaste system. That's why Jim loves Quip. That's why my wife loves Quip and why over one million happy, healthy mouths do too. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash martini. Getquip.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move on to our bad martini now. And Joe Biden is flip-flopping around. Joe Biden, as we've mentioned, has not had the smoothest rollout, hasn't Hurt his poll numbers, really. He's still got a commanding lead over Bernie Sanders and the other 22 Democrats running for president of the United States. And so, Jim, Joe Biden is under fire now in a couple different ways for flip-flopping. Back in May, Biden was at an event. I think this was just shortly after he officially announced he was running. He was uh, confronted by an ACLU activist, uh, an elderly lady, who wanted to know more than anything else where he stood on the Hyde Amendment, which, of course, bans taxpayer dollars from being used to pay for abortions. And here's that exchange. Will you commit to abolishing the Hyde Amendment, which hurts poor women and, and yes. women of color? Yes. And by the way, ACLU member, I got a near perfect voting record my entire career. I heard you did, but I'm glad you just said you would commit to abolishing no, no. the Hyde Amendment. Right now, it, it, it has to be. It can't stay. Well, Jim, that was a whole month ago. Joe Biden has a new position now. Here's Kristen Welker of NBC News. But now he's coming under fire from other Democrats amid revelations he still supports a controversial abortion law, the Hyde Amendment, which bans using federal funds for abortion services except in cases of rape, incest, or to save the life of the mother. Critics say the law prevents low-income women from access to abortion. The Hyde Amendment is wrong. Uh, I think that we have a nation where all these insidious things are being done to undermine women's reproductive rights in this country. This isn't about the politics. This is about what's right. The Hyde Amendment should not be American law. 
So there you go, Jim. Uh, the two voices, in case you didn't know, at the end there were Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren. They're appalled. So are a bunch of other Democratic presidential candidates who think it's unconscionable. The taxpayer dollars aren't used for abortions. Um, the best part of this, or the worst part of this, is the explanation from the Biden campaign. This is Fox News. According to his campaign, Biden thought the woman was asking about the Mexico City policy, a ban revived by President Trump's administration on international aid for groups that either promote or provide abortions. Quote, Biden misheard the woman on the rope line and thought she was referring to the Mexico City rule, which prevents federal aid money from going to organizations overseas that perform abortions. So as of right now, uh, he actually still supports the Hyde Amendment. He didn't care too much about it when Obamacare got passed. He certainly thought that was a big deal. But now he's uh, he's the radical. He's the crazy man in the Democratic Party for not wanting all taxpayers to pay for abortions. I'm going to say two words and I want you to hear whether you hear what you hear. Hyde Amendment. Mexico City policy. (laughs) Did you hear me say the same thing twice or did you hear me say two different things? I'm wondering if this is one of those Yanni versus Laurel sound effects sort of things (laughs) where depending on the the pitch and frequency of your ear, you hear something different. Uh, I mean, look, this is an interesting spin from the campaign. Look, uh, uh, Democratic primary voters, relax. He's not flip-flopping. He can't hear what anyone is saying and he's easily confused. That, That should make everybody feel better. Um, probably the more, uh, the slightly more serious negative effect of this bad martini here is that, so one, you see Biden shifting in this direction. Then you could probably make the argument by, you know, by certain measures, he was a, if not uniformly pro-choice, I think you'd be kind of stretching the definition to call him pro-life, but the idea that he had, you know, by the standards of the Democratic Party, wasn't willing to go 100% all the way. Well, now he's willing to go 100% all the way. He occasionally will repeat his lip service of saying he's personally opposed to abortion, but he just doesn't think there should be any restrictions on it in any way, shape, or form. And oh, by the way, taxpayers should pay for it. And at that point, I kind of wonder, so how exactly are you morally opposed to it if you actually are perfectly okay with it and you're comfortable with every taxpayer being required to finance it as well? And, and I think the, the reaction of the Biden campaign here, I think, is, is illustrative. There's been this, you know, oh, you know, Biden's the centrist in the Democratic Party. Well, let's keep something in mind. Joe Biden has always been about where the center of the Democratic Party is. He's never been furthest to the left, and I don't think you can really say he's been someone who tried to push him to the right. Back when Biden was tough on crime and uh, sponsoring the, the, the big crime bill back in the 90s, that's where the mainstream of the Democratic Party was, by and large. There really is not a lot of points where he's been pulling the party in some unusual new direction. So by when people say, oh, Biden could be a centrist after, you know, if he was elected and beats Trump. Well, he's not going to be that centrist. He'll, he'll be roughly where the center of the Democratic Party is. And you and I have discussed many times in this podcast, the center of the Democratic Party is a whole bunch of steps to the left of where the center of the Democratic Party was in 2016. You could argue 2012. You could argue 2008 and, and everything before. So the idea that Joe Biden is going to be a, a great uh, or, or even a speed bump to the, the hard left movement of the Democratic Party. I think it's I think it's kind of uh, whistling past the graveyard. I think in the end, Dem- Joe Biden, if he was, becomes president, will just sign into law most of what his party wants, and you know, absolute total uh, not just permission of abortions, but financing of abortions. You know, one hundred percent all the time is probably where he would end up signing into law, despite what he might say is his personal objections to the issue. Jim, I know we've mentioned this before, and I don't want to dwell on it every time we talk about Joe Biden, but uh, he seems fuzzy. Uh, And I don't know if that means that he's losing it. I just think it means that uh, he's not quite as quick as he used to be. 
And yes, we've got three different septuagenarians in this race when you think of Trump and uh, Bernie Sanders as well. And maybe there's another one I'm not even aware of off the top of my head to show that he's ready to be the president of the United States into his 80s. He's not off to a good start here. I was going to say, you know, when you said fuzzy, Greg, I mean, one, that's the picture quality on the video. <laughs> Look, no, I'm not kidding. I really just feel like they have some sort of vaguely soft focus thing that they're doing uh, with his little video announcements that he's doing, including his, I'm sorry, I've been touching women in a way that makes them uncomfortable. I'll try to do better message. Um, but also, you're right, mentally, he's, he's now more than once made the, the emphasize the point that China is not really a, a threat or menace or even something we should be worrying about, which I think made some people sit up and take notice. Look, running for president is difficult. I know it looks easy when you're sitting home watching it on TV, but you're constantly getting pelted with questions. You have to think on your feet. Uh, people who listen to this podcast know you and I make all kinds of, well, most of it make errors all the time. And, you know, the words come out kind of jumbled and not quite as clear as we hope. Now imagine doing that pretty much all day, every day, you know, constantly in front of cameras. Ideally, as a candidate, you get better with this. Maybe, maybe you know, Biden's a little rusty. Maybe he's not as uh, at the top of his game. But uh, look, it doesn't get easier from here. It does not get simpler. And it's, people kind of speculated, hey, you know, Biden's not really doing a ton of sit-down interviews. And it's not like he's doing meet the press and stuff like that. At some point, he's going to have to. And we will see how he handles that kind of tough questioning and perhaps, you know, maybe some cross-examination style questions from some of his rivals on the debate stage. Let's go on to our really crazy martini now, because that wasn't the crazy martini. There's another prominent Democrat who's even crazier. This is Politico. Speaker Nancy Pelosi told senior House Democrats that she'd like to see President Donald Trump in prison as she clashed with House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler in a meeting on Tuesday night over whether to launch impeachment proceedings. Pelosi met with Nadler and several other top Democrats who are aggressively pursuing investigations against the president. This according to multiple sources. Nadler and other committee leaders have been embroiled in a behind-the-scenes turf battle for weeks over ownership of the Democrats' sprawling investigation into Trump. Nadler pressed Pelosi to allow his committee to launch an impeachment inquiry against Trump, the second such request he's made in recent weeks, only to be rebuffed by the California Democrat and other senior leaders. Pelosi stood firm, reiterating that she isn't open to the idea of impeaching Trump at this time. Quote, I don't want to see him impeached. I want to see him in prison, Pelosi said, according to multiple Democratic sources familiar with the meeting. Instead of impeachment, Pelosi still prefers to see Trump defeated at the ballot box and then prosecuted for his alleged crimes, according to the sources. So, Jim... Nah, this doesn't rise to impeachment. This is this is more criminal. So let's let this all play out. This is fascinating on Pelosi's part. She's tired of being the person being seen as the weak and the less aggressive person in the party. She's now trying to convince people that getting rid of the president from his current job is actually the weaker position. You know, this is not just a crazy martini, Greg. It's kind of a complicated one because on the one hand, if you don't think the president of the United States should be uh, impeached, you're, you're, I guess you're technically rooting for Nancy Pelosi, which is an odd position to be in. You're hearing statements from her before this one that made more sense than this. Um, and you're slowly watching her succumb to this gravitational pull of the far left of the party. Uh, plus, I think just this why, like, on the one hand, there's this perception that House Democrats really want to impeach President Trump. And, and certainly among the progressive grassroots, this is a, an enormous appetite fury and then just, you know, hunger for this. Um, but you look, add up the numbers, last night I checked, 41 House Democrats have said they support impeaching the president. That's well below the 218 you need. And so you're kind of like, okay, is everybody else just kind of 
secretly they support it, but they're holding back? Or, or do they genuinely have, they, do they see what, what Nancy Pelosi sees? My suspicion was at some point we would have seen Pelosi snap. And she just ended up screaming in her caucus, you morons, if we do this, he's more likely to get reelected. And then we not only lose the ability to impeach him, because there's no one in the Senate going to go and support this, we also end up losing the election. And then we're stuck with him for eight years instead of four years. What's it going to take if we are thick skulls to understand? You know, that kind of, you know, sure. But instead, she's now in this weird, you know, I don't want the president impeached. I want him jailed. Unless you think of the presidency as a, as a form of prison, psychologically. It's, you know, you, you kind of need to do one till the other. So to say to the progressive grassroots, look, I know you want to impeach him now. But I'm going to say, you know, possibly as early as 2021, possibly as late as 2025, uh, we are going to prosecute this guy and put him in jail. Um, just a bizarre, you know, reasoning there. First of all, if you really believe the president belongs in jail. If you believe the president has committed crimes serious enough to put him in prison, wouldn't you think he should be removed from office? Isn't that, you know, like there's no logical or moral internal consistency there. The only explanation that makes sense is, look, it's not going to work. It's going to cost us in 2020. You got to swallow it, you know, this bitter pill. But that's that's the way that's the circumstances we're in. The closer we get to 2020, the more ridiculous it looks. You can't just impeach on a dime. This is like a six-month process. Learn to live with this. But uh, the Democratic base does not want to hear that. And it's going to be absolutely fascinating. And I think on her part, excruciating to watch day by day, week by week, month by month, her gradually come to terms with the fact that she's going to be forced into you know, embracing an impeachment process that deep down she thinks is a bad idea. Absolutely fascinating. First of all, uh, unless they think they're going to dig up some financial crimes, uh, obstruction of justice, even if they go down that road, doesn't necessarily result in jail time. Just ask Ray Lewis. And mm. the other thing is, this reminds me of 1996, when two future presidential titans, John Kerry and William Weld, were battling for the Massachusetts <laughs> Senate seat that Kerry held at the time. And Weld thought he had a huge winner against Kerry that year, which shows you uh, where the politics of Massachusetts were at the time, by saying that John Kerry was soft on crime because he opposed the death penalty. And then somehow Kerry pivoted that to pointing out that it would be harder to extradite criminals back to the United States if those other countries knew that the death penalty was on the table. And all of a sudden, Bill Weld was painted as the guy who was soft on crime. Uh, so uh, it's quite the mental head game that uh, Nancy Pelosi's playing here. The interesting thing would be, I mean, I suppose you could see some prosecutor attempting to prosecute a former president after leaving office. But uh... The other thing also is, you know, odds, Greg, that uh, the Democratic National Convention in 2020, that they started chant of lock him up. Oh, absolutely. All right. So I remember, oh, it's so undignified. Oh, what, what is this? Some sort of banana republic? Some sort of, you know, well, this is where we are. You know, when, when people think the opposition party has committed crimes, they tend to create, create cheers around that. And that's, uh, that's what we have to look forward to, Greg. Amazing. Thank goodness it's Friday. <laughs> Tomorrow will finally be right. It's been a rough week. We've hoped it was Friday a lot this week. Jim, talk to you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. He's also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Don't forget that we're sponsored again today by Quip Electric Toothbrushes. Starts at just 25 bucks. And if you go to getquip.com slash martini right now, you get your first refill pack of brushes for free. Thanks for being with us today. And tune in again Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.